Hello and welcome to Ponderings from the Purge. This is Priscilla McKinney, your host as always. But today I have with me Siggy Hale. He's actually Dr. Siggy Hale. And he's going to be talking about some really interesting and deep principles about uh, about market research and really his take on neuroscience and so much other good stuff we're going to chat about. Um, so Thrive Plan is where he works and they are a very unique insights and strategy firm. And while they work with a lot of big brands, they're really looking to advance implicit measures in quantitative studies and really help teams think about what's going to happen next and how can we understand um, everything that we know and bring everything that we know to bear about neuroscience into research. And so I think you're going to find it completely interesting. I hope the conversation doesn't go too far over my head, but Siggy is really kind and he's going to lay some things out for he, for you. So I'm going to let him tell you a little bit about his background, but we're going to dive into what's going on and why does this matter. So Siggy, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, tell us a little bit about your role at Thrive Pine. Well, um, I am a... Uh, sort of an escaped academic. Um, <laughs> before I was an academic, I, I've, I'm a, a natural born scientist, I'd say. I've, I've been inclined towards science and been acting in one way or another as a scientist, really, since I can remember. Started for me as a young child. Um, so then, you know, the obvious place for me to start was in academia. Um, I had a good long run. I was a junior professor at UCLA, a tenure track. I had the NIH grants and my own lab and that whole sort of thing. And I did that for a long while. And while I was there, I came to meet Hunter, who's the president of Thrive Plan, and started doing some work outside of the walls of academia and uh, just really loved it. I loved seeing science be applied in the real world and seeing it actually make a difference and being able to test some of these things that we work on in laboratories and see them actually function in life and have effect is really validating and, and it's exciting. And I just loved it. And so at a certain point in time in my career, um, I just jumped ships and went into the private sector. And it's been great. So I've been with Thrive Plan for five or six years now. I'm the director of research there. I love and, uh, it. <laughs> the principal neuroscientist. And yeah, it's it's just been fantastic. And Hunter's got a great mind for science and a great mind for business. And so he's been able to translate a lot of my work in a way that um, really resonates with our clients and and. and has utility for um, them like right out of the gate. And right. So that's also been really satisfying. Yeah, that real application. I, I, first of all, I just love that your title is Principal Neuroscientist because what that tells me is that maybe there are more <laughs> on your team. <laughs> but I, you know, here's the thing is that I, I get that you've been studying the brain and really the systems and, and trying to understand you know, the difference in human psychology, perception and cognition and what, what we should be looking at here. But I guess my other question is, did you get to wear a white lab coat? <laughs> no, actually, I did not. <laughs> um, Dang it. <laughs> sort of the opposite. I, I was a California kid, you know, from, from top to bottom and grew up there and kind of was the opposite of the white lab coat person. As an <laughs> okay, well, probably not, you know, super important to our conversation. But <laughs> nevertheless, I knew it needed to be at. So, well, yeah. you mentioned that, you know, your whole world of being in academia, and, you know, uh, there are amazing learnings out there. And you're going to talk to us a little bit about them. But you and I talked um, before about how there has been little transfer of that knowledge out to the rest of the world. And that's why you were interested in working with Thrive Plan. So why do you think that is? Why do you think there is a gap between academia and how people are applying uh, what we're learning 
out there in in the business world? Yeah, so there are a few things. I'd say the first one is really that, and it's it's just sort of a temperament feature of scientists, is that, you know, we nerds are not necessarily the best communicators on the planet. You know, we like to go into our, you know, rabbit holes of different stripe and spend lots of time with ideas and with things and sort of, you know, pounding on on, on truth and trying to get at truth. And we don't spend as much time probably as other sectors of the workforce having to actually communicate with lots and lots of people who are sort of in this scientific pursuit. And so um, I'd say part of it is that we're not naturally, you know, really great communicators to begin with. And then the culture of science, the culture of academia doesn't really encourage communication with, with the world outside or at large. And that's kind of an unfortunate cultural phenomenon that I'm not sure exactly where it started, but it's definitely true. There are even liabilities associated with sort of getting too far outside the bounds of academia. So, you know, we're encouraged to give talks at, at um, you know, rigorous scientific meetings, so on and so forth. But as you venture out into the real world, you sort of run the risk of gaining the title of like a pop psychologist, mm-hmm. pop neuroscientist. <laughs> and that's really a dangerous thing for an academic. Yeah. Um, because what happens invariably is that in order to talk to the rest of the world, we have to um, communicate things at a very high level. And that means to some extent, we're sort of sacrificing some scientific rigor and fidelity in the details. Mm-hmm. But that's part of the trade-off in order to communicate with people that aren't trained scientists. And um, for some reason, just culturally, it's uh, it's not really encouraged. And I really think that it should be. I think as an academic's life should involve a certain requirement to go out and talk to people. You know, you know who's mentioned this a lot. I know her her studies are not in your same field, but Brene Brown has talked about this all the time. And you know, here you are, a PhD, talking to me about that. And she constantly reflects on that and says, you know, she gets, you know. A lot of uh, blowback because oh you know you're you know you're really dumbing it down you know and showing the research in a way but it's really applicable and is actually taking that neuroscience and helping people understand what's going on. Yeah, and it's really getting down to what we call the so what you know like the what's one of the interesting things when I moved into the private sector I made a big sign and put it in my office that said so what if I. And it was this idea of like turning everything into the so what, like what meaning and relevance does this have, quote, in the real world. Mm -hmm. And um, that was that was a really interesting and fun way for me to sort of reflect on the scientific work that I was doing is to really think of it in that applied context. And I think there's a lot of um, good that comes out of that. It really helped to even further my own rigorous scientific thinking. Mm-hmm. So uh, I really wish that, that was a, there, there would be a sort of cultural change in academia on that front. But really the biggest reason that I see a chasm between what's going on inside of academia and what's going on in the business world, and particularly market research, is that what we're doing to understand humans or what I was doing as an academic to understand humans is fundamentally different than what's happening in market research. Mm. And what I mean by that is that market research is doing what I would call um, what research. It's a lot of phenomenology where people in market research are generally looking at what people think, what people like, and what what people do. In academia, you know, this was something that was commonplace in the 50s and 60s. It was called behaviorism. And it was really looking at this phenomenological level of behavior and thought and action. But since the early 90s, we've transitioned into really doing how and why research. So we're really focused on looking at the sort of underlying mechanisms that help us to understand how and why we come to form our thoughts and our preferences. And that's a fundamentally 
different nature of our approach to science. Um, and I think that distinction is really, really important. It's like a completely different lens. What you're saying is very, very simple the way you're saying it, but it's actually a massive shift. Right, because with the how, when you're trying to get at the how and why, you're having to look at the sort of underlying mechanism. So people think of psychology incorrectly, again, as being what people think and what they like. But that's not psychology at all. Psychology is how we come to think our thoughts and how we come to have certain likes and dislikes. It's how we how we get there. Can you give us some examples of that? Because you you know you talk about that th- we're obviously not getting too deep into academia, but can you give me some examples of how researchers were thinking and then how now we're putting this new lens on it? What does it look like in the real world? What's well, that? What's that? What versus the how? Why? Yeah, what really drove the change was brain imaging. Mm, Uh, It was this ability to kind of look under the hood um, inside of the mind and seeing it function in real time in relation to like things that we would ask it to do. And so with the advent of fMRI, like in the early 90s, um, this idea of that we could actually study humans and human psychology at a mechanistic level, we could really get under the hood and look at like how we how we arrive at our thoughts and how we arrive at our preferences and likes. And so it opened up this whole new world of possibility to be able to get at these things. And then other imaging modalities started to gain in popularity and whatnot. But really since the 90s, the thrust of psychological and neuroscientific work is really about the how and whys of human thought, Mm -hmm. emotion and behavior. And that's something that's totally different. And I didn't realize how different it was until I got into market research where, you know, you're basically putting out a lot of surveys and you're asking people lots of questions about what they think and what they like and what they do. When I was an academic, we hardly talk to anybody basically (laughs) and if we did it was always in a kind of clandestine manner where we were sort of looking for little tells and little indicators of certain things that we were interested in because of models about thought formation and emotion and things like that and then we were looking inside of their brains in one form or another either using methodologies that are called psychophysics or brain imaging types of things we were really going directly to the biology and sort of trying to see what's going on there and there's some really important things there are sort of implications of this difference. When you're doing what research, phenomenological research, you're dealing with infinite variability and complexity because how people manifest thought and dislikes and likes and all these kinds of things is infinitely variable. Hmm. But when you get down to the mechanisms, there's a wonderful thing about nature and that the underlying mechanisms of nature the things that underlie how we get to our thoughts are relatively simple. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. Yeah, keep going. Give me some examples there. Okay, I'm following you. So a great example of this is color. So if you look out in the world at the phenomenological level, you see what would seem to be an infinite variety of colors and shades and variability in like color. But really we know now because we've studied the mechanisms of color that it all comes from just three primaries and then an achromatic sort of black to white scale. And that's all That's all it is. And so if we were trying to understand color preference and we had no knowledge of those mechanistic aspects, we had no knowledge of color theory, think about how easy it would be to spend years and years being confused and lost because we're just looking at people who like these different colors and we're trying to figure out some pattern that would tell us like why they like all these different colors. Mm-hmm. And we could get lost into thinking that it had to do with culture or it had to do with you know, other, all different kinds of demographic factors and who knows what different paths we might march down to try to figure this out. With an understanding of the mechanisms, three primaries, red, blue, and yellow, and then an achromatic scale. We now know that 
red and blue impact our physiological arousal differently. So red revs us up, blue calms us down. Yellow impacts our emotionality, and so do the achromatics. Mm. So dark is scary. Yellow is happy. <laughs> okay, so what you're, what you're saying by that is that if we don't understand those fundamentals, we may not even be researching what we think we're researching. Right, because we're struggling kind of looking at lots and lots and lots of variability, lots of different signals, and we're trying to figure out a way to attribute causality to it. Like, mm-hmm. you know, why does this person like blue? Well, now we know because color stimulates us and, and our color preference is a manner of self-regulating our physiologic state. So people who like blue are regulating towards lower physiologic arousal. People who like red are regulating towards higher physiologic arousal. Mm-hmm. And, and so we can now look at any code of color and look at the combination of those key ingredients and disentangle why they like why a given person likes a certain type of color and when that changes we understand what might be going on as their sort of need to regulate in a different way is changing and we now understand how color impacts sort of brain state and all these different ways because we were able to get at the mechanisms and fortunately nature has this really elegant manner of creating complexity out of simplicity and so it takes just a few modular building blocks And through combining those elements in different ways, it can create sort of infinite variety of things. Mm -hmm. So that's that's an understanding of neuropsychology, well, psychology, personality, brain science. um, And then then there are other layers on top like culture or maybe mind state or as in the case right now with the global pandemic, there's also other layers of situational things on top. But what you're saying is we got to get to the very bottom of them to make sure that we're actually measuring what we think we're measuring. Is that right. right? Yep, exactly. And and with regards to human psychology, and we're trying to understand how we come to think the thoughts that we do and how we come to like things and dislike things and whatnot. You know, if you talk to people, you're going to get this infinitely variable and complex set of responses. But when we look under the hood, just like with color, we find out there's actually just a limited set of things going on. And that's really good news, because if we understand those limited set of things that are going on, just like with color, we can really start to get at like the causal links between um, why people are coming to think certain things, why people are coming to like certain things. We can really start to understand personality differences. And that was the thrust of my work is understanding these sort of core elements of that form the basis of how we uh, experience the world and ultimately form personality and identity. And that work is the is sort of the, that body of work is what I've now taken into the market research domain with Hunter and the rest of the team at Thrive Plan. And we've developed ways to test it and wield it. And that's what we're doing. Um, You you know, you could not um, really be having this conversation with me at a more interesting time. So let's let's put this into context because we are still in a global pandemic. And even no, no matter where anybody thinks we are on the scale of beginning, middle, end, um, way back looking in the rear room mirror, which we hope to be someday, the reality is, is that, you know, there are a lot of things going on uh, that are deeply connected to our psyches. <laughs> so, yep. you know, uh, green is not green anymore. Red is not red anymore. There are a lot, there's a lot going on here. And so as you you use research to help teams think about, plan for, ask the right questions and figure out how they're going to thrive in business. And now even more, we think about it in these months to come. 
how is this putting another layer over your work? And what is it that you think brands must do in order to understand how they come back, how they bounce back, or how they change, how they pivot? Well, to to dive into that story, I have to back up a little bit and kind of give you the what I think of as the decoder ring, understanding people's thoughts and uh, likes and dislikes and preferences. And then we can talk about how the pandemic has impacted that. Good, good. But are we going to have to drink more more Ovaltine at the end of this? You see, I like a little bit of serious on this show and just a little bit of let's relax. Let's take a short break. Teams are getting smaller, but you still have to get your research in field. If only you could partner with a global expert to be an extension of your team without the extra overhead. Look no further. Gazelle Global provides the ad hoc services you need when you need them. Visit gazelleglobal.com to learn more about how we can handle global sampling, field management, data collection, and more. Our team is ready to lend our expertise to complete projects to your specification. Visit gazelleglobal.com today. All right, so tell us about how we decode what's going on. So, and this is, a, this is a, in my mind, one of the most critical, for anyone that's interested in understanding humans, this is a really important evolution of our thought about human personality and human thought. And what it comes down to is essentially this, that humans, um, that it really goes back with like, this came to me really through the study of like the evolution of information processing. And when you think about a nervous system, like at its most fundamental level, it's basically, it's taxed with the challenge of maintaining homeostasis. So that means it's basically trying to keep us alive. And it has to figure out which things will help in that pursuit and which things will hurt. And it never has enough information to make a perfectly rational decision. So at its core, what a nervous system is, is a guessing machine. And over time, we've evolved these different systems to try to get good at making these guesses about what will help us and what will hurt us. There's four systems, and they evolved serially, like one after the other. The first one is our instincts. And that's just what everyone thinks it is. It's just millions of years of evolution, refined these different things that make us afraid of snakes and other things that are just instinctual phenomenon. The next one was memory. When we developed the ability to create a database of our personal experiences, now we could leverage our personal experiences to make better predictions or better guesses about what will help us and what will hurt us. So now we've got these two different systems in the brain, our instincts and our personal experience, our memory database, trying to help us understand what something is and what we should do about it. So from after that, we then evolved what we would think of as our social mind. We developed culture, we developed consensus ideas, we pooled knowledge, and we created a kind of um, system of ideas that we could think of as dogma, but not really dogma. They're just sort of agreed upon truths. And that that culture has its own properties because the culture can start to become richer and richer with ideas that may or may not be perfectly aligned with reality. But nonetheless, they become a system of understanding of the world. And now we've got three different systems in the brain that are interpreting information, telling us what it means and what we should do about it. And then the last frontier was 
this sort of capacity for rational thought. And I think those are, most people would understand what that is, but rational thought is essentially this ability to be able to put a bunch of information on the sort of whiteboard inside your mind and sort of run different scenarios and hypotheticals and kind of play with that information to like look at different possible eventualities or configurations of things. And you could think of a different, like, what is this and what does it mean? I'm going to bring forward all this knowledge and information. I'm going to model it and I'm going to think rationally through what it is and what I should do about it. So now you can imagine that every single human has to contend with the fact that we've evolved these four different systems to tell us what things are. Each one operates, they all operate together at the same time, and we have to sort of orchestrate them. We have to manage these different systems. And just to give you an example, like if you see, for instance, a snake, your instincts are telling you something about that snake, and it's very negative. It's like runaway danger. Your personal experience is telling you something, and it may or may not be aligned. Like you might have grown up with snakes and had a pet snake, and it was a great. I actually had a pet snake, <laughs> pet snake in Clifford, and so my personal experience, depending, you know, is like not negative. It's like no, actually, snakes are cool. I like snakes. That's fine. My social mind, let's say that I'm a member of a devout sort of, you know, religious group that has certain feelings about snakes and that there's certain cultural ideas that are attached to that stimulus. And now my social mind is telling me how I should interpret that stimulus. And then I go into this rational mind and the rational mind is giving me lots of facts and data and sort of unemotional sort of rational thought that's kind of saying, oh, this is what this is and this is what you should do about it. And all four of those different interpretations of the world are available in parallel at all times. And how we manage those and how we sort of give different degrees of um, podium time to each of them is really a critical predictor of like how a human behaves. And we also transition between them. And so that there are times when it's more appropriate for me to give more weight to my instinctual sort of information processing system. There are other times when it's 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 makes sense for me to give one to more more weight to my memory information processing system, my my experiential and sensory based sort of um, node in the network. Like in other words, we make transitions in our brain state mm -hmm. that reconfigure how much influence these different systems have. And so fluidly too. We just we almost don't even it perceive well we don't perceive uh, consciously that we're doing it. Right, but when we do when we do our taxes, we know subjectively that we're <laughs> trying to get into a different state than exactly. when we're on vacation <laughs> watching a sunset. Right. And we also can subjectively relate to the idea that what happens is that over time, people develop biases in the way that they sort of organize this team of perspectives. Um, and so that a given person shows a profile. And that profile is a reflection of which of these systems they're biased towards and how they manage them, how they fluidly manage them, how much transitioning do they do? Some people, it's very, they don't transition very much at all. Some people are very fluid shifters, and they can move between these different perceptual lenses very fluidly. And what's critical to understand is that when you move between these different perceptual lenses, you're literally activating a different version of the world. You know, one version of the world, like, again, with the snake example, your instincts could be saying, run, and the other one's going, oh, cool, look, a snake. You know, and as you transition between those two different mechanisms, you're getting a very different signal. 
And what you end up doing is a reflection of how you've managed this ensemble of different sort of consultants that you have in your brain. That's right. right. But and, they are and, wearing lab coats, Siggy. I'm just telling you. <laughs> well, the expert <laughs> one is wearing a lab coat. Right. Okay. Maybe maybe not the the, the instincts one has is lacing up his tennis shoes. Right. right. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So with that, that really serious neuroevolutionary perspective that you're giving us that helps crack the code on really what makes humans tick if you understand that you know that uh, that really science there what what does this why is that so important to bring over then into research or in terms of understanding what humans are doing right now well there's a couple reasons one is that people do develop these profiles and their profiles are measurable and so we have developed means to be able to measure the sort of relative weighting of these different information processing lenses, we call them in our work, these sort of motivations. But they're really these information processing and decision-making lenses and systems. And once we know how a person orchestrates or manages these different systems, we, can, we know a great deal about how they operate, how they're, going to, how they're going to see the world, how they're going to make decisions, what kind of information they're going to perceive favorably and what kind they're going to perceive negatively. And that gives us a leg up on sort of understanding, um, being able to predict how that person is going to um, navigate through various experiences and mm -hmm. consumer decisions. Mm -hmm. um, to give you an example, um, we did a project once where a company was, was very confused about different signals that they were getting in relation to a couple of products that they had. And one of the products was a sort of um, less fancy, sort of like less uh, luxury, sort of but more practical, a little bit cheaper. And they had another partner brand that was a bit more, it was more expensive and more high end, so on and so forth. And they were getting all these mixed signals and they couldn't figure out the data because some people seemed to love them, some people hated this and that. What we figured out is that people that showed more of this kind of rational, oriented bias towards that information processing lens were the ones that really liked the sort of more practical, just results-oriented product. Mm -hmm. And the people that showed greater emphasis towards the more experiential sort of memory-based information processing lens were the ones that were their core customers for the more luxe brand, where all these different sort of attributes were brought to bear. Mm -hmm. And once you divided the world up into those two camps, then all the data made sense. Yeah. And all the signals started to make sense. But just like our, our initial instinct thing is trying to help our brains solve really complex problems quickly, we also, as a society and as market researchers and marketers, also try and do that with our consumers. Let me break you down really quick into a simplified answer. Are you this consumer who would like it or not? But I love two things you said in that, Siggy. You you use this phrase to understand how they will navigate. I love that, first of all. And then you use the word fluid. And the reason why I love hearing that on the show is because too many times I hear market researchers come out like, give me the answer. What's the data? Like, what is this consumer going to do? But that is to come at it from a lens as if our behavior is completely predictable because humans are so freaking complicated. And what you're doing is giving us the tools to understand how they're navigating is what you're saying. And the reality is there can be a very different outcome. Every single, you know, me four times through the same process, I may not give you the same result because other things are happening in my life that are forcing me to look at my situation from a different perspective. Right, right. So, yeah, that's exactly right because we do transition, but we kind of have our, our our home base, if you will. Right. So, 
So like, let's say somebody's home base is this really sort of, they, they really bias towards that rational decision-making lens and information processing lens. And now that person is trying to go on vacation <laughs> and they want to <laughs> sit down on a beach and watch a sunset. Um, and they're not a fluid shifter. They're, they're really like, if you measure their brain at multiple times throughout the day, they really tend to stick towards that rational lens. That's their preferred way of understanding and navigating life. However, they do from time to time want to shift into another state. That transition has some tension for them. They might need an extra margarita to get there, you know, but, but I'm on it. I'm on it, Siggy. <laughs> and so it's this idea that you, you understand the nature and then once you understand the nature, then you put that nature in a context and you yeah. see how those contextual pressures are interacting with the nature. In that case, there's a lot of tension and it's hard for them to shift. Whereas if someone is more naturally inclined to look at the world through this um, this this lens that involves, I didn't really go into how that memory-based lens works, but what it's basically doing is it's trying to understand the world by applying everything that it sees to its own personal experience. Mm -hmm. And so when it's doing that, it's using a very sensory immersive kind of high resolution sensory process with lots of fidelity, lots of rich sensory detail, and it's connecting dots back to things that mm -hmm. it went through in its life and that have a lot of emotional to it, emotionality to it. Mm -hmm. It tries to make the world feel familiar by making it relatable. And a person who's naturally inclined towards that information processing lens, it's very easy for them to drop into a sensory immersive experience. Right. They can go on vacation and watch a sunset. <laughs> no problem at all, like no margarita required. Right. <laughs> and so and so knowing the nature and then looking at the contextual pressures and then understanding the transition that's unfolding gives us a really important leg up on on thinking about what the person's experience is. For some people doing their taxes is a very natural experience because they're they start from that brain state and there's not a lot of tension. They right. kind of might even enjoy it. For some people, it's a very, very difficult and unnatural sort of transition to make. Yeah, all those things you just described makes me think of the the quote that I've heard like long, long, long time ago was, my dad always took us on vacations we couldn't afford to take so that we could have the memories that we couldn't afford to be without. Mm. And this is very much about, you know, making that shift into, you know, kind of to bring up the example you, you used about, you know, someone, you know, choosing that vacation. And I think it's very apropos because it is about, you know, we don't make all of our decisions from one place. And even if we start at one place, we may, you know, if we have that brain elasticity, we might be able to nudge ourselves to the right one that we where we want to make the decision from, even yeah. if it's not the most natural place for us. Yeah, that's kind of the idea of the optimized brain and, and this this um, interest in mindfulness is, is relevant in that topic mm -hmm. because the idea is that a more mindful person is essentially studying the machinations of the system and becoming more mindful of these state transitions. So you, you understand that you have the capacity to move through these different perspectives, these different information processing lenses, mm -hmm. and you can start to do it more volitionally and go into the practical lens when you need to do your taxes, go into the personal exploratory sensory experience lens when you want to watch a sunset. You can even go into your instinctual lens when you feel that that's appropriate and your social lens and sort of note the differences in your version of yourself mm -hmm. that emerges under those different lenses right. and, and the differences in the reality that you perceive. Mm -hmm. And so a really optimized human is someone who has some agency over this and some awareness of these transitions that are taking place. But for the most part, through the formative years of childhood, people start to discover that one of these versions of the world works best for them. It produces, on average, more positive outcomes. 
and so that people start to type themselves over time and start to develop biases towards certain brain state orientations that favor these lenses in different ways. And so people do, by the time they're you know, young adults, really show these characteristics that this person tends to be kind of over here, this person tends to be kind of over here. That being said, everybody does transition. If under so just an example, like under some kind of sudden emergency situation, everyone's going to go instinctual. Right, right. Absolutely. You know? But we all are driven. What you're saying in that is that the brain is driven for a positive feedback look, loop. And I think the other thing that it just, I just sit in awe and I just think, what a marvel the human brain is. <laughs> It is absolutely fascinating. But let's tie this back real quick. And especially, you know, uh, Ziggy, as just an absolute thank you for coming on and sharing your expertise. I want to tee you up just a little bit about Thrive Plan and let you tell us a little bit about the series of studies you've done on COVID and why you think this, you know, this matters, why you think this lens and this this body of, of, of knowledge and expertise is so important to understanding where we go next. Yeah, so... In our work, we have some models that um, inform how we think um, these things express over time, like in a society and in a culture and the different roles that people that show different profiles with regards to these information processing lenses, like the types of roles they play and whatnot, and sort of the sociological structures. And we wanted to see um, how those were playing out in relation to this unprecedented moment in human history. And we wanted to see if we could get a leg up on sort of cleaning up the signal, you know, um, mm -hmm. beyond just people saying, you know, the sort of obvious sort of what's, you know, beyond just the what research, but the why research. And so we applied our research to sort of the psychology, understanding the psychology of humans at this moment in relation to the pandemic. And we discovered some really interesting things. What it really boils down to is that the social mind and the rational mind, like those two information processing lenses, um, are change averse. They're, 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 those, when people are biased towards that kind of information processing state, they're inclined to order, predictability, they're change resistant. And that group of people who, who show those profiles are having a tougher time with this experience and they want to go back to normal. And that type of person is um, what we often call is like they, they're the thinks, they're the heads, they're sort of above the neck. They're, they're going to be responsive to ideas and information, verbally delivered. Um, they're very cognitive. And they're having a tough time and they want to go back to normal. And they're about 65% of the population wow. because more people than normal will transition into that social mindset under duress and even the rational mindset mm -hmm. talking about the contextual pressures as a mechanism of survival we sort of circle the wagons and we go into that collectivism sort of mindset and a lot of people have transitioned um, into that state and so and then there's about 35 percent that are ardent on the other side they're the instinctual people and the experiential sort of memory personal experience people they're highly sensory oriented they're the feels they're sort of below the neck and these are the people that are more open to change they're the kind of person that loves adventure they even like chaos because they've learned to 
feel a certain amount of control through the experience of managing the unexpected very competently. <laughs> you know, so they kind of jump into this with both feet and go, hey, let's let's do this. They're, you know, in times of past, they were the pirates, you know, <laughs> and, um, and adventurers and inventors and, you know. Yeah. Well, and I, I see a lot of these messages you, you ta- as you talked and kind of talked about these different types, uh, you know, or maybe I guess you'd say like natural reactions. Um, uh, I can see it already in the marketing messages that's being been going out on COVID. And, and just to that point, I saw one last night that was a lady who had lived through the uh, last you know pandemic, and she just had this message like, "I've been here, and it'll be okay." And it's interesting because it was so different from some of the other messages. And so I can see how brands are struggling to make messages make sense to multiple mind states, really. Right. And so what was what was needed or neat for us, at least, in seeing this data was that, you know, we could really go into a two segment solution because the two people that are more on the sensory side, the instincts and the 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 explore sort of memory based information processing lens, they sort of converge. And then the two people on the more verbal side, the sort of rational, practical, and then the social mindset, they converged. And they really showed this stark difference in terms of the level of comfort with what's going on. And what's interesting about this, or what's really important, is this 35% that's more comfortable with change, that's more comfortable with chaos. They're looking forward to like a possible new world and a bunch of new realities. And there's more positivity for them in that. It's not all positive, but there's clearly more positivity. And so you can kind of talk to them about a brave new world, and that message will land for them. And that message will resonate with them in a positive way. Whereas the other group are ardently wanting to go back. They (laughs) want to go back to the familiar. They want to go back to how it was. And if you started messaging them with, you know, this, how the world is going to be forever changed and different, da, da, da. It's going to be a birth. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they're over in the corner in the fetal position. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. I love that. I love that. Well, I want people to go check you guys out online. It's super easy. It's thriveplan.com. And there's really some great information, what they call the nine whys, and it decodes the four motivations and the five costs that explain and predict behavior. And I mean, there's just so much more good stuff out there. Siggy, tell everybody how they can reach you and connect with you um, on some of these modalities and and really just to get a greater understanding of what is the way forward for brands. Well, it's easy to connect with me through our website, but you're also um, that's probably the easiest thing to do is just go to the website and you can connect with me through there. Great. And then you, uh, it, it's it's Dr. Siggy, um, uh, uh, Dr. Siggy Hale, H-A-L-E, but also, uh, like you mentioned, the president of Thrive Plan is Hunter Thurman, T-H-U-R-M-A-N. You can find him on LinkedIn as well. But this is such a powerful conversation. If you want to continue it, be sure to reach out to uh, to Siggy. As, uh, as you can see, he's very approachable, you know, to, to really understanding what is it that we must do now to bring this learning into market research and really do a better job bridging that gap between the two. Siggy, thank you so much for being on Ponderings from the Perch. This has been a real a real treat into a deep dive. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Awesome. From all of us here at Little Bird Marketing, have a great day and happy marketing.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.